Hello, everyone, and welcome to C-View Quantum Network. I'm your presenter, Daniel, and I'm here with producer Claudia Pareco. Our opening song features Reach for the Stars from Cyclone's new album, Showtime, available on all music stores and platforms. A moment of your time is one of the most extraordinary gifts we could ever be given. We are honored every time we've received a moment of your time. We are servants of the new age, the time of prophecy, the time of the ascending sixth sun. We are a platform for alchemists and multidimensional souls. We connect with many planes of reality and assist the awakening journey. We are pure light, transmitters of high vibrational light out into reality. Our shows are held on Fridays at 12 p.m. Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time. At any moment to participate on our shows, please call 805-830-8344 and press 1 to talk with the host. Call for free at 805-830-8344 and wait in line or you can use Take My Call. And for $11, you can jump the long list of callers. Do so at www.paypal.me slash P-U-R-E-C-O slash 11. And then please PM or email Claudia Pareco at cview1111 at gmail.com and include the phone number you'll be using to call the show. All of our podcasts are easily found in all social media and are available free, live, or on demand. To request a show, please write to Claudia Pareco at cview1111 at gmail.com or visit our website, cview1111.net. Now, let's listen to our host and topic of the day. Danny and welcome everybody to today's podcast. It's the new messages from Metatron Study Group with author Debbie Nina Vincent. We meet every month on the third Friday at noon Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Mountain Time here on CBU. And I hope you will join us each month and tell your friends. Before I introduce our host for today, let's remember some statistics that we talked about last month. Belief in angels is an ancient idea stretching back before the time of Christ and includes all faiths. 77% of adult Americans believe in angels and 94% of adults who attend regular religious services believe. 55% of Americans say they believe their guardian angels have protected them, and this number includes people who do not consider themselves religious, as we heard from in our last podcast. In Messages from Metatron, I personally was introduced to this powerful archangel. In Chapter 2, Metatron talks about that which we call God. Like many, I have personally released the word God when referring to source energy creator of everything and for whom I now call impossible, as I just don't have a name or term that is fitting. A fascinating, though provoking chapter that we will cover today with the loving guidance of author of Messages from Metatron, Debbie Nina Bingham, but we call her Nina. Debbie Nina Bingham is an award-winning author, life coach, clinical hypnotherapist, sorry, certified some therapist and life voyager. She strives to inspire conscious living and conscious dialogue. She is a self-published author with many years of experience, and she is 
starting her own company in which she will put her skills to use. Now, welcome to the show, Nina. Thank you, Claudia, for that nice uh, introduction. And to our listeners, welcome to the show. Um, Before we jump into today's lesson, I'd like to share a little bit about how this book came about, because we have a lot of new listeners today, and this is a book, and it's a curriculum, actually, of channeled messages, which are non-denominational, so anybody, uh, anybody at all can make use of these lessons, even if you're not a believer, and they've been dictated to me by the Archangel Metatron. So a little background is necessary, and before you color me crazy, uh, just hear me out on this. So like Claudia was saying, in every major religion, there's a belief in angelic beings. And Christ even taught that each of us has a guardian angel. So either we're wrong if we don't believe in the angels, or Christ was wrong, because he did talk about them. The word angel is translated um, as messenger. Um, and what do messengers do? They bring messages, don't they? So that's what this book is. It's, it's 30 messages from the Archangel Metatron. And uh, I don't see angels. I hear them. And that's called clairaudience. It's a psychic gift, and I've had that since I was a kid. Um, it took me three years to complete the 30 messages from Metatron, and then I added a study guide for group study, and that's what we're discussing in this podcast. So now I brought you guys all up to speed. Um, <clears throat> I'll hand it back over to you, Claudia. Okay, she must not be there. I'll take over here. Today we're studying lesson two, entitled Not My Will. Um, we'll be discussing the chapter summary found at the end of message two. And we'll be taking callers' questions, so I hope you'll call in. Even if you haven't read the book, you can still participate in our study group, um, but it'll be easier for you if you have read the book. The ebook sells for $15 on Amazon, but for a limited time, I'm offering the ebook for free to the Seaview listeners who would like one, okay, for just Seaview listeners. So to request a free copy, go to Seaview's Facebook page, okay, just put Seaview Quantum Network in, or you can go to the Seaview website and uh, go to Debbie Nina's. Debbie Nita Bingham's show page, and then you'll see there a request form. I would love to give everybody a free book. Okay, so let's get started then with the summary topics in the back of Chapter 2. The first topic for discussion is, number one, we project human traits onto God to understand God. And number two, it is impossible to comprehend God because God transcends human characteristics. And so while Claudia is busy bringing people on, I'd like to start by uh, responding to this. Because it's impossible to comprehend God, we project our human traits onto God. But really, it's you can't blame us because humanity is the most evolved life form on earth. We're the most intelligent. We're the most advanced. So If another creature were more intelligent, let's say there was a giant octopus who ruled the earth, then we might conceptualize the creator as a giant octopus. But because we're the most advanced life form, we can only imagine God resembling ourselves. That just makes sense. So I didn't get the sense that Archangel Metatron was blaming us for this mistake. But he was pointing out that it's a mistake to think that God is anything like we are. And the Bible says that we're made in the image of God in Genesis 1.27. Let's talk about that. And here's what that scripture says. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Now, this is a very interesting verse. It only gives two defining characteristics of God, that God, number one, is the creator, and number two, that God created humans as both male and female, and in this, we resemble God. Now, if we're to take the scripture literally, which is what Christians do, they take the Bible literally, that means that God is both male and female, or it means that there's both a male and female aspect to God. What else could it mean? 
all we can glean from the Bible about this matter of what God looks like and acts like is that God is both male and female in characteristics. But that's not what traditional Christianity teaches. I was raised in a conservative Christian home, and I attended a conservative Christian church until I was 18, and never once did the pastor discuss this issue, which I also find very interesting. I was always, it was always ignored, which, which uh, because it's the only descriptor we have about why God created us as he did, and by he, I mean he and she. So why is this never discussed in church, do you think? And, and what it says is in stark contrast to the paternalistic belief that God is a male, that there is no feminine aspect to God. Um, but the Eastern religions believe that God is both male and female. There's both God and goddesses. In, in Hinduism and in, in Buddhism, the Jains believe that there are both male and female gods. So I'd like to uh, throw this question back to Claudia. Claudia, what do you think? Why do we project out our human characteristics onto God? And why does Western religion say that God is only male when the Bible says that God is both male and female? You know, Nina, that's something that we have, I have pondered a lot. And one of the things that I would say is back when uh, Christianity started, back when Jesus and all the apostles and all of that happened, I think humanity, we were under the influence of the male energy. It was very predominant, the male energy since then. And males tend to... uh, suppress anything that sounded female because that was considered considered weak. And and anything around and the life of Jesus where most of Christianity uh, is based was only focused on the males, the apostles, the male ones, and even Mary Magdalene, the mother Mary, all of that area were put into a second um, background, almost forgotten. And we are we talk about a lot of scriptures that were forbidden back then where the, the, the males that were the ones in charge of that part suppressed that material and because they didn't want it, female energy to raise and to become balanced because if you think as, as a male energy, you want to dominate. You want to be the ones that have the same. And anything else is not permitted. So I believe that's why. And the, the sad part where I, that I see is that the female energy or the woman or the uh, ones that carry the female tender part, we agree to that somehow we participate in that um, phenomenon. And little by little, there was a, there's been this awareness, this awakening of humanity and of women. And we are like, no, let's raise that. And personally, um, Nina, at this point, I do not know how to call source. I have come up with a name of saying, and I refer to it, or whatever that is, as impossible. As I cannot find something that I can relate to where I'm not projecting my own um, humanity beliefs or um, anything that resembles the old. So I just have at the moment, I don't have, but impossible. I can't, there's an impossible word for that, which we call or used to call God. Yes. I, I think that's beautiful that you call it impossible. <laughs> because really, it is impossible to define um, in an accurate way. Um, here's what Metatron said about this concept, okay, about the, the fact that we project our human characteristics onto God. Um, 
He said this, quote, your popular representation of God is a creation of fearful minds which demand answers, which fashion answers in their own image, but this is not God. And then he goes on to say, what you have is a relationship with your own projection of God. So he's saying that we make God into a person, that we make God into a male, a father, and we assign God human traits, and then we relate to this version of God as if it were accurate. But not only that, but religions defend their version of God to the death, right? Wars have been fought. (laughs) Blood has been spilled over this. So uh, I'm curious to know, Claudia, what, what you think of this statement that he made. Let me say it again. What you have is a relationship with your own projection of God. In my opinion, it is. It's like we have a projection of a relationship with everything, Nina, not only God. But I have come to this point when we talk in this chapter, he also talks about oneness. And when I think of that and how I project anything of mine to have a relationship with that which I call my reality, I now understand it is a projection. It is a projection of that which makes me... um, have a relationship or relate to that in a way that I can understand and I can have a dialogue or some kind of relationship. So in terms for me to have a relationship with God, I want to believe he is like me and he feels like me and he he talks like my language, or and I. So otherwise, I think we come to the impossible. It's, it's impossible. Yeah, yeah. And um, so let's let's look for a minute at why it is important that we understand the concept of God in the first place, and the concept that God is nothing like a human. I mean, why would why would Metatron bring this up in the first place? Why is it important enough? that an archangel dictates a whole chapter about this, okay, explaining that God is not one of us, that God is both feminine and masculine, that we have fashioned God in our own image so that we can feel that we have a relationship with God. Why why is it so important that he would bring that into this book? Um, Now, this is what I really want you to understand. In order for you to receive higher knowledge, in order for you to develop insight and wisdom beyond what the average person has, there has to be alterations in your common sense. There are certain ideas that are difficult to get across, not because they're intellectually complicated, Not at all because of that. Metatron's messages are quite straightforward and simple. But because they're unfamiliar to us, they're unusual or esoteric, they sound weird to us, we haven't been raised to question what we've been told. And so people were at one time in the past told that if you sailed to the horizon where the sun met the water, that you'd fall off the earth because it was flat. And they thought it was flat because it looked flat. You know, if you look out to the horizon, it looks like a ship could fall off the end. So no one had risen far enough above the earth to see that we live on a globe, not a flat surface. And when astronomers challenged this uh, belief, it made people incredibly insecure. And then astronomers said, the Earth is not only round, but it's not the center of the universe, like the church is teaching. 
we're just one planet that revolves around the sun, and the sun is the center. And that really made people insecure, angry even. So do you see what happens when entrenched beliefs are questioned? And when a new idea about God or angels is introduced, we have to do quite a lot of adjusting, I guess you could call it, to assimilate new ideas. But if our accepted beliefs are never questioned, then new information can never be assimilated. And progress stops, doesn't it? We stop moving forward. And when a society stops moving forward, it begins to move backwards because of entropy. So everything is in a constant state of decay. That's what entropy means, which is why you don't want to stand in one place for too long or you might start to grow mold. (laughs) So these ideas that may seem challenging in this book, what may be new ideas to us, are not new ideas to the Eastern religions. In fact, they, it, they would be old ideas to them. Buddhists and Hindus have accepted that there is a father and a mother god, a gods and goddesses, for about 10,000 years now. And their cosmology of the universe has been developed for a millennia before ours was. So the point of bringing our questions out into the open is so that we can develop as a species and develop as an individual, as a spiritual being. And there's a method here to Metatron's madness. He's trying to get us to think about more than our basic needs, not only to survive, um, but to find a deeper meaning and purpose in our lives. Because if we're just surviving, what's the point? I mean, we're no longer we're no longer on a on a higher level than the animals who can't reflect on their existence. So questions that elevate us to a higher and higher level of consciousness is very important. And too many people live in mundane existences, and they're only cheating themselves. Too many people let other people and institutions do their thinking for them. I mean, if you question a person who has an open mind, you're going to learn something, and they're going to learn something. But if you question someone who is threatened by the question, you'll never get anywhere. So my stance is that I consider myself to be an open-minded skeptic. I don't believe everything I'm told because I have a brain, and it's best to use that. But I also keep an open mind So that it's okay if I'm proven wrong. Actually, I'm totally delighted when I'm proven wrong because that means that I've just learned something. And when I learn something, I improve myself. So in reading this book, your ideas are going to be challenged and your mind is going to be stretched. Uh, Keep an open mind so your consciousness can grow and so you can exist differently than you are now. And... um, I'll end here uh, by quoting a modern philosopher. His name was Alan Watts, if you're not familiar with him. He said this about change. He said, quote, "It It is well known in every mystical tradition of the world that the supreme vision only happens when you're disposed of every idea of God whatsoever. The great mystics have always ceased to cling to God. In order to discover God, you must stop clinging. Why does one cling to God and to other things? For for safety. So we cling either to God or to something else. But if there has to come a state, there has to come a state when clinging stops. And only then does the real state of faith begin, unquote. And so he goes on to say that people who think they know God don't have any faith because they want something to hold on to. So real faith 
is when you do not hold on to anything anymore. And in order to come to full union with God, a real knowing, you must give up every conception of God. St. Thomas Aquinas, I think is how you say his name, said this, quote, because of God's infinite nature, the best way to speak of God is by removing from God every inadequate concept. So, Claudia, what do you think of of, of what uh, Alan Watts had to say about this? I agree. And, and you know, Nina, when... I, and I agree that you cling on that because you are afraid. And also because I think many times when you release yourself from that, uh, which we call God, we mm. come back to ourselves and we become responsible of us. And instead of thinking, mm-hmm. well, this is the will of God, well, this is what God says, this is what he thinks, this is what he feels. Now you have to say, okay, what is it that I think? What is it that I feel? What mm-hmm. is it that I know? And uh, that's a scary point to be because, uh, yes, like you said, we are all, we have always been told this is the, this is the true way. And when that is not longer true, then you're on your own. And Mm -hmm. the idea of being on your own is the scariest thing. But let me tell you, Nina, that when you are actually on your own is the happiest place to be. Mm. Yes, I agree. It is scary. Um, And I think that uh, I would say most of society or the majority of people um, want to have an answer. They want to have an ideology that they can cling to because it takes the uh, element of surprise out of things. Um, If you have an answer for everything, whether that answer is right or wrong, it's comforting, isn't it? And so I think we do these things not to fool one another, but because we just don't know any better. Um, So that's, you know, this chapter two is really, it shook me up when I when I when I channeled this chapter. I was really shook up by some of the things that were said because I realized, you know, I'm a Hindu, and I realized that I had been, even though it's good what I'm doing, I'm meditating, I'm praying, I'm, I'm chanting ancient Sanskrit chants, I'm doing all this good work spiritually, but I'm I'm clinging to this um, identity an identity of a Hindu. And it's true, all the Hindu masters that were self-realized, they had to come to a point, Claudia, where they let go of who they thought they were. And then they became who they were destined to be. And, and so I think that's what's being said here, is that we think that we know God, we think that we know where we're headed, we think that we know we're either a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu or... Uh, Buddhist or whatever we are, um, but having to let go of that is more freeing than anything else that we could do. So I want to jump back to something that we kind of missed here. Um, this lesson's title is Not My Will. And so another question we're looking at today is how can we come to know God's will for our lives? And and I don't know about you, but throughout my life, there have been hard decisions and change points where I've asked myself, am I doing the right thing? Am I going the right way? Am I making the right decision? I don't know how many times I've asked myself that. And in response to this question, the Archangel Metatron says in Chapter 2, he says, quote, you must decide if you will do the will of your mind or you will do the will of your higher self. And so he's presenting us with a choice. Follow the ego or follow the higher self. And he goes on to say that when bad things happen to us, when we're experiencing painful circumstances, we sometimes blame God. And I know I've done that many times. When my teenage daughter took her own life at the age of 15, 
The first person, quote unquote, I blamed was God. And why do we do this? Because we don't like to think that God would allow such tragedies to happen. I mean, I asked many, many times, God, why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you wake me up in the middle of the night so I could have stopped her? Why do innocent people suffer in this world? And I stayed mad at God for quite a while until I realized that in the end, it was my daughter's choice and nobody else's. That She secretly went off her antidepressant because she thought it would make her fat, and that was a deadly decision. But sometimes it's more convenient to blame God. So Metatron says that we blame God because we attribute to God human characteristics and even a gender. God is a he, a father, not a mother. And this is what we've been told. But even that God acts like a human, that he's wrathful, that he can be vengeful, and that God is even jealous. That's what, that's what the Bible says. So, and again, the Bible wasn't written by Christ. Let's note that. The Bible was written by human beings. So it's human to humanize God. And because we have a hard time relating to spirit, I mean, how do you relate to a spirit? I think that's what you were saying earlier. We can't comprehend a spirit that lives outside of time and in another dimension of space. We know that a spirit is composed of energy. We've heard that. But most of us don't understand topics like spirit guides or angels and archangels or even the afterlife because we can't see it. We can't touch it. The scientific method, I was trained on that when I was in college, and it tells us that whatever we can't measure isn't real. Whatever we can't measure isn't real. And I remember sitting in one of my classes and almost laughing out loud when I read that in our textbook, okay? Because I believe there is another dimension, in fact, more than one dimension out there. And I also believe that there is life after death, that we are immortal souls. But the scientific method that we're taught in school says the opposite, that you've got to be able to measure it for it to be real, okay? And yet quantum physics has proven that there's a whole subatomic world that we can't see or feel. And so if there's a subatomic world invisible to us, I think that science still has a lot of learning to do about this mysterious force that we call God. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there is so much, so much that I don't know, uh, Nina. I, I know that that just thinking that I can explain all that uh, he is or she mm-hmm. is just ridiculous. Like like if the veteran says, is like whatever you think that you know about him is laughable because we don't know. We is so little. Mm-hmm. Even when you are talking about your will and, and think about will, and I said, you know, it's, it's also it's very difficult uh, thing for me to understand because in one hand, I, uh, I am told that I have free will, but on mm-hmm. the other hand, there are so many things that do not appear to be part of my free will that appears to happen to me. That makes me question how really free I I am of making my decisions or my Mm -hmm. choices because Mm -hmm. they are limited to whatever I have on my reality. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult even to understand how much human, how much divinity it is inside of me when, when, uh, when you want to act on that which you are allowed to that because it's you are limited so then you're you see it's like it is very difficult it's very difficult for me that so i have just released a lot of those concepts because i don't understand Mm -hmm. them i don't know how Mm -hmm. to talk about those yeah 
Well, let's talk about free will for a second. That's an important um, aspect, okay? When it comes to God and humans, there's something in the middle of us called free will. So let's talk about that. Um, Because another question that Lesson 2 explored is, will God interfere with our decisions? Will God change the outcome of our decisions? Or are we truly free will creatures? And I know the answer to this because I've read the book, but um, it would be interesting to uh, find out what our callers think about whether God will rescue us if we have a free will. But let me move on to it, free will, for just a second to say some more about that. Um, Metatron says that because we have a free will, God and the angels will not interfere with the consequences of our decisions. So let me explain that. So once we've decided whether to go right or left, okay, we make a choice. We go right or we go left. We've made that choice. Then then they will not step in to interfere with our choice. They're not going to steer us right or steer us left. Free will means we get to make that choice when we're at that crossroads, okay? Now let's talk about what he says about when the angels step in. When will they step in? So having said that, Metatron does say that angels can and do step in to protect and to comfort us and to guide us towards the best possible outcome. So I think of angels as messengers, but I also think of them as mitigators. In other words, if I make a decision that leads to a tragic outcome, then they cannot stop us from making that decision. And can they look into the future and see there's going to be a tragic outcome? Yes, they can. That's what Metatron says, they can. But they will try to get through to us, to guide us, and to cause the outcome to be less severe. Okay, so do you understand that? The the distinguish there between stepping in and taking our will away and being mitigators of bad circumstances, okay? So having said that, there have been occasions in my life that my life was spared by something that I can only explain as spiritual, as an angelic intervention of some kind. I know by experience that my life has been spared. And I'd like to address this. And I'll have to um, give you an example here. When I was a girl, we lived on the Russian River in Northern California. And uh, we were river rats as kids uh, where I grew up. And one summer day, we were swimming in the river. And my sister and I were swimming together. And we got caught in a whirlpool that sucked us down to the bottom of the river. And those whirlpools, I don't know what the, the name of those things are, but... They're very strong, okay, and we were just kids. So we got sucked down to the very bottom of the river in this whirlpool, and we, we both knew how to swim, but these sinkholes are really strong. And so we were under so long that I remember my last thought being, wow, so this is how I'm going to die. I'm going to drown. I mean, I was about seven, I think, and I remember thinking that, and then I thought, I'm only a kid. Wow, I've had such a short life. You know, I kind of felt sorry for myself. I thought, boy, that's kind of kind of a jip, you know, seven years. And then as I was thinking that, and then my short life flashed before my eyes, just like they say. I mean, I had what, what Metatron calls a life review, okay, where I saw my entire life flash forward real fast. And the next thing I knew what I felt was like a huge, strong arm grabbing us and whooshed us to the top of the water, and both my sister and I came out of the water, and we were choking and crying, and my grandmother, who had taken us, um, you know, to the beach, was running towards us in the water, and because she'd lost sight of us and knew that we were in trouble. So when she got to us, the first thing I asked her was, where's the man that saved us? Because I wanted to save him. And she said, there's no man, honey. We're, we're the only ones here on the beach. 
And I looked around and there was nobody. And I, I tried to tell her that a man's arm pulled us up from the bottom of the river, but she thought that it was in my mind. And, um, but I know what I felt. And I know someone or something saved our lives um, or I would have drowned at seven. So this is an example of angelic intervention. Even as a kid, I knew that it had to be an angel because there wasn't any other explanation. So while Metatron says that angels cannot transgress our free will, they perform what I would call rescues. So, Claudia, have you ever felt like you were rescued by something that you couldn't explain? I'm, I was thinking of the talk, and I don't think so. Mm. I don't think I have ever had that um, that help. Now, I've never been in a in a situation where my life has been in danger. I think so. I don't know. I think I kept my angels very busy. <laughs> I've been rescued like this um, probably four times in my life that were life-threatening situations. And every time, by the skin of my teeth, I don't know how it happened, but I lived. Um, and I, I've got to think that, you know, it, it was unexplainable, all these things that happened to me. Um, so, yeah, I think that angels um, cannot change our wills, that we're given will just as, just as God has a will. Um, but they do med- they do um, step in to make the consequences a little less severe for us. Uh, and that's kind of how we describe it. Do you think those interventions happen as you leave, or when you plan your life, you have them put into your life for a reason? Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Do you understand what I mean by that? Uh, Is that something that random happens while the event? Or since we design our lives, which is another thing that uh, mentioned in this chapter, did we design our lives with all of those occasions where we would have angelic interventions for our life plan? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm just going to share from personal belief and personal experience, the longer I live, the more I think that it's almost as everything is Um, Mm pre-planned. The longer I live, the more I think that. Um, Now, when I was younger, I would have given you a different answer, Claudia. I would have said, oh, no, I'm in charge of my life. I'm making all these decisions myself. I'm the big shot. But, you know, I'm, I'm almost 60, and I've seen a lot of life, and from where I'm sitting, it does seem to me that a lot of what's happened to me has taught me the invaluable lessons that I needed to learn in this life. And so how could I have been given those lessons, those tests, if you will, uh, that I needed to learn in this life to make me a better person, to evolve me, to develop me spiritually and as a human being, if those things weren't written into my life chart in the first place? See, so I believe a great deal. I believe personally about 80% of our lives are pre-structured. And, and we haven't reached that chapter yet in, in this study, but Metatron does dedicate a whole chapter to this issue about the life chart, or I believe he does, or at least he talks about it a lot uh, in this book. So let me explain what a life chart is. He explains it like an obstacle course. Okay? He said, before you come into this life, you have a hand in creating your life chart or what you might call a blueprint okay, for, for your coming life. And with the help of uh, elders or intelligent beings that are a little higher than we are, they help us to look at all the different scenarios all the different outcomes that could happen, and then they help us put together this life chart. And then we come to Earth or whatever planet we're sent to, and we have to get through this obstacle course that was planned. Okay, And by obstacle course, I think what he means is 
He's talking about the tests and trials that we go through, the pain that we go through, the heartache that we go through. And he even talks about meeting soulmates. He's got a whole chapter in there about soulmates, which is a really good chapter. And he says that we don't just have one soulmate in a life, that we could have a multitude of soulmates in our lives. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and he calls them soulmates because we're destined to meet them, and they're destined to meet us. And by soulmate, he said, this is how you'll know what a soulmate is. This is his definition. He said, if they've taught you something, they're a soulmate. Or if you've taught them something, they're a soulmate. So we can have lots of soulmates in this one incarnation. Now, we can only have one if we're going to learn a little slower or if we're just going to learn through one person. So that's just a little bit about the life chart. So I think um, not only do circumstances come to us that were meant to come to us, but I also think that we meet the people that we're supposed to meet. And sometimes he says, Soulmates, we think of it as, you know, a wonderful experience where we fall in love with our soulmate and we're happily ever after. But he said it's it's not like that. He said the reality of soulmates is that often we learn through difficult circumstances. That's how humans learn. I mean, if you think about how a baby learns, okay, a baby human, a baby human learns through doing the wrong thing the first time. Right? He puts his hand on the stove and he figures out, oh, I'm not going to do that again. I got burned. So a lot of times soulmates are not pleasant experiences. Okay? They may be painful experiences. No, now that may be pleasant. There's going to be many pleasant experiences that we have through people. But but he says, Don't don't be fooled. You know, there are many soulmates that come and teach you painful lessons that, that you need to learn. So that's his definition of a soulmate. But he says that's all written into our life chart. In fact, he said even pets, even our pets, right down to our pets, are written into our life chart. He said when you walk into a pet store and you see that cute little face that you can't get over and you have to buy that puppy or that kitty or that bird, whatever, he said that animal is playing a part in your life drama. And that animal was sort of predestined. He doesn't say that. He never uses that word, interestingly enough. He said that animal is supposed to be in your life, okay? And and you were supposed to pick that animal, and that's why you were attracted to that animal in the first place. That attraction you felt was your life chart pulling you toward that animal. And he says the same is true of, of our soulmates, is that we're going to feel when we meet our soulmates like, I've known you for a million years. I mean, it feels comfortable when, when we meet a soulmate, doesn't it? Like we've known yeah. them forever. Yeah, and he says that's how you know they're a soulmate. If you have that instant bond, that instant connection, even if they just stay in your life for a little little short period of time, they're still a soulmate. Because why? Because that magnet was there that drew you together. And he said that's a soulmate right there. So I know for myself I've had many soulmates, and I've had, you know, a couple of animal soulmates as well. And, and and I think it goes even beyond that, Nina. I think also, for example, your home, that feeling when you get to that house that is going to be your home, that feeling that you you have arrived or that this is the one or that stone that you go to a store and it talks to you and you just have to have it or, you know, that clothes that you choose, like, there are so many things that you that attract your attention or your energy that I think in that term they are also predestined to be in your way. Yes. Well, you know, the Hindus, that's very good insight, Claudia. I think you're right. And the, the Hindus actually would agree with you um, because they call life, they have a wonderful word for life. Uh, they, call, they, they don't think of it the same way we do. They think about life as a play. Okay, and that that we're all here playing these parts and that we have, you know, if you've ever been to a play, you see the stage props there on the stage, don't you? You see a lamp and a, and, and you see a, set, a setup maybe for a, for a living room that the people are in. Those are stage props, okay? And so what you're saying is even the stage props are supposed to be there for us, you know, are going to be there for us, and we're going to be drawn to certain stage props, 
right? So the Hindus believe that. They, they believe that everything that happens in our life is, they call it maya. Now you've heard that, that word before, maya. Mm-hmm. The word maya means magic, okay? It's sort of a supernatural magic. And so that God projects out into the universe this divine play, this maya, and that we're all characters in that divine play. Okay, and then it, and then the Hindus even go on to say, if you can wrap your mind around this, that not only are we characters in God's play, but that we are God pieces of God, if you will. Mm-hmm. That 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 we're all disguised. That we're all our soul is a piece of God, and that He sent it out into the universe, and you landed on this planet, okay, through through your life uh, blueprint. And now you're just masquerading. You're wearing a mask. And the mask you're wearing is Claudia Pareco. And Claudia is a broadcast manager. And she broadcasts spiritual programs. And that's what she does for her work life. And then in her private life, she's got this life over here. So that's your mask. Okay. And then I've got a mask on. And we set up this this intricate uh, Maya with each other. And that actually is just, we're fooling ourselves, okay, that, that, that we're just the soul dressed up, that's all. And so, yeah, I think that Hindus would uh, agree with that. Yes. And in another, um, you mentioned a little bit before, but another um, thing that he talks about in this chapter, which grabbed my attention, was these cosmic elders that are in charge of approving your life plan. And that's a new concept for me. Like, mm-hmm. who are they? And why are we, why do we have like elders? Like, it, it, it's interesting that in, in many of the things that he says, he's like, okay, so there's source. And then we have all these messengers, which are the angels. And then we have these elders that approve your life plan. It's like, if you're talking about another type of stage, are these characters that we created just to understand that it's impossible, or are they for real? Mm-hmm. No, they're for real. I mean, <laughs> they're, they're beings that are very real. And in fact, the Egyptians believed, the ancient Egyptians believed, uh, Claudia, that these elders came to Earth, okay, in a time that they called Zeptepi, or the first time. So um, when, you know, mankind was, was in its primal state, that these elders came to earth, okay, that they, that, that they seeded earth, and that they came to earth to teach us um, agriculture and farming and, you know, all kinds of things, hunting, gathering, uh, how to build huts, all that stuff. So um, the ancient Egyptians talk about seven to nine elders, okay, uh, that came to earth to be teachers and protectors of our race in in ancient times. And I'm not talking 10,000 years ago. I'm talking, you know, 100,000 years ago, a long time ago. So I believe um, that's just from my research that what Metatron is talking about. Now he never he never defines who they are, does he? But he, he just hints at them by saying there's this council of elders um, who are wise and and they rule the universe. He does say that. And you know they report to to God, but um, as I understand it, they're sort of on the same level as Father Mother God. Okay, so they're not. I, they don't supervise God necessarily, but they're definitely on the same level. And and they rule the whole universe, the whole cosmos. So hmm. I believe that's who Metatron is, is talking about. So then uh, we are now starting to talk about there is not a God, but there is this entourage of something which is many of things or whatever beings that mm-hmm. conform that source energy that usually we would 
we we always want to think it as just one, mm-hmm. right? Well, yeah, we do because it's easier to relate to. You know, we were, we were talking earlier that we want to think of God as a big human in the sky because it's easier to relate to God that way. If, if we know that God has ears and he's listening to us, he has a mouth, he can talk to us, it's a lot easier to relate to that than to relate to a spirit, okay? And that's why we project our characteristics upon God, so that we can relate to God. And I think we do the same thing um, in regards to, well, there's only one God. And, of course, the one God is my God, right? My God is the right one, not your God. (laughs) My God. (laughs) So we do that because it gives us a sense of security, I mean, if there really is a whole bunch of elders up there that rules the cosmos that I don't know very much about because I haven't studied ancient Egyptian mythology, okay, um, that's a little unsettling to us to know those kind of things. Um, So I think it's, again, it's us trying to make sense of a very complex dimensional, multi-multi-dimensional system that is what we call the cosmos. And, and again, I want to say this, emphasize this. Metatron is not coming down on us for doing that. He, I never got the sense in this whole book that he was ever upset with us for projecting our own image onto God or, um, you know, making the mistakes that we do. We're just human, and I think that they know that. And he's just trying to get us to open our minds a little. That's all. Just expand our menu of what's possible when it comes to God. And then I love that at the almost at the end of the chapter, he loves, he talks about and he says God loves you regardless of our behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and um, it's so cute um, because he also says. I think it's right in that in that area of the book. He says, if God doesn't love everybody, who's going to love everybody? He said, that's God's job, I think is the way he put it. He said, God's job is to love the people that you can't love. Okay? He said, the people who, you know, the criminals, um, the people we consider evil, that, that God understands them. Now, it doesn't condone what they've done. But, you know, God is so far above our own thinking that he can look at this creation and say it's still learning. Now, it hurt. This creation of mine hurt something else, and I don't approve of that. But I can still love this creation anyway because that's, and he said, that's God's job, and nobody can do that as well as God can. We can't do that. If somebody has injured my life and taken things away from me, ruined my life. It's very difficult to go on loving that person, isn't it? It is. Yeah, but but God is able to do that. God transcends, again, that human characteristic of, you know, revenge and revenge-seeking and all of that. That's just not part of God. God is love. God is love. And is there anything else that you wanted to tell us before we finish today? Well, I'm glad um, those people who are listening listened in. I hope that you'll join us um, next month. I I believe it's on the 18th uh, that we're going to uh, meet back here. Yeah, it's March 18th at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time on Seaview. And um, if you'd like to contact me, you may just go to my blog, and that's www.ninabingham.blogspot.com. You can find messages from Metatron on Amazon.com. And thanks, everybody. And thank you for being here. And have a wonderful rest of your day and weekend. Thank you.